I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is cultural psychologist Michelle Gelfand, Ph.D. and author of Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. In 2011, Michelle Gelfand and her colleagues conducted a major cross-cultural investigation of the behaviors of 7,000 people in more than 30 countries. Published in Science, the study led Gelfand to develop the tightness-looseness classification system of cultures that is the focus of her new book. Gelfand explains how tight cultures have strong social norms and little tolerance for deviance, while loose cultures have weak social norms and are highly permissive. She's a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland and is featured in the Washington Post, NPR, the New York Times, and many other publications. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Michelle. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're talking about tight cultures, tight or loose environments can produce social norms that create cultural conflict, partisan divide, organizational success, happiness, creativity, and so much more. Can you explain this to us, the real difference between the tight and the loose cultures? Sure. So, you know, I'm a cross-cultural psychologist, and so I study behavior all around the world. I've studied cultures from the ancient Aztecs to Alabama and from Sparta to Singapore and even from the military to Silicon Valley. And what I found out is that our divides are much more um, profound than just what we usually think about them in terms of red versus blue or rural versus urban, east versus west, that there's really kind of an underlying cultural code that drives a lot of behavior and differences across groups. And that really has to do with how strictly groups adhere to social norms. Uh, social norms are just so interesting. They're these unwritten rules that we have for behavior, and we totally take them for granted. We're really an ultra-normative species. You can think about us as following rules, these, these, these norms from the moment we wake up until the morning we go to sleep. We wear clothes when we leave the house. We drive on the right or the left side of the road, depending where we live. We don't face the back of elevators and push all the buttons. Um, you know, we don't sing loudly in libraries. We're following rules all the time. But what I've discovered from a lot of my research over the last three decades is that some groups follow rules very strictly, and they're tight. They have strong rules and punishments for deviance. And other groups um, are much more loose. They tolerate a wide range of behavior and are very permissive. And what I found is that this distinction is affecting a lot of things around us in our lives, from our parenting to our politics, um, from our nations to our organizations. So I've set out to really articulate what is this tight, loose construct and how is it affecting us? Why did it evolve? What trade-offs does it give us? And so forth. Yeah, very interesting. And you make the comparison. Maybe we should make this, and this is a somewhat easy comparison to understand. Let's take the United States, which you define. We have a loose culture as opposed to in other countries that have or another like you say in um uh other country or another country that has a tight culture and just the example that you give uh, like uh, in the United States for instance uh, we can jaywalk uh and we don't get arrested and we don't spend 6 months in jail or have a $100,000 fine for doing that right uh, whereas in other countries and you might name a couple of them uh, that's not the case because it's a tight culture. So let's give some of those examples, the specific examples. Yeah, so when we, we, yeah. we studied uh, over 30 nations, um, we were able to classify <clears throat> nations on a general metric of how tight and loose they were. 
Uh, think about, like, when we think about personality, we can think about, okay, how extroverted or introverted are people. We wanted to see, can we develop measures and metrics to place whole countries on this construct, even though each country has their tight and loose areas or domains. And we were able to develop a measure like this so we could see in our research that places like Japan or Singapore, China, um, Austria, and Germany, they veered tight in our data. Um, countries like Brazil and New Zealand and the Netherlands um, and Greece and, and to some extent the United States um, veered loose. And, you know, what we really wanted to understand is why do these differences exist? You know, culture is not just kind of a random thing that develops for the most part. It, it somehow evolves for good reasons is what we sort of guessed. And these countries, you know, you could see they don't share the same geography, they don't share the same religion or the same language. They're really diverse. So I really wanted to see what's one of the most important factors that produces tighter loose. And we found out that um, tight cultures tend to have a lot of threat. And what I mean by that is they can have threats from Mother Nature, like a lot of natural disasters or um, food scarcity or less arable land. Um, they also can have much more hum- man-made threat, things like a uh, hundred years or even more of invasions on their territory or very high population density, um, even pathogen prevalence, um, disease. And it's really kind of simple. When you have a lot of threat, and this applies, by the way, not just to nations, it applies to organizations, it applies to other aspects of our world, that when you have threat, you need rules to coordinate to survive. So they're, they're really functional. Um, when right, we give have us an, I want to stop you there, to oh, because sure. I want to give specific examples sure. so people can really understand. I was just going to, one of my experiences, the differences, well, political differences, uh, you know, I had traveled through uh, Vietnam and, and Cambodia, but really Vietnam. And I'm thinking, what, what, when I got in country right away, I could feel that this is a tight culture that I better not jaywalk or I better not break the rules, whatever those rules are. And a very different feeling than in the United States or the New Zealand or the Netherlands or the ones that you described. And a yeah. very different, and it would just one other thing be the, difference between Hanoi and Saigon. Saigon, of course, it, we had, the United States was in Saigon and had a huge mm-hmm. influence during the Vietnam War. You can feel sort of a looser kind of feeling in that city than you do in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. That's just my own personal example. Yeah, these are great examples. And you're, I would say that you're sound like you're high on cultural intelligence. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we often think about general intelligence or emotional intelligence, but actually there's you know, when people go abroad, often they go abroad because they're intelligent or they're technically competent, but they're not necessarily ready for the cultural differences. And you sort of have a cultural radar when you're in these places. Um, and actually, we've seen that when people don't have cultural intelligence, when they don't fit the cultures, then they have a lot of problems when they're traveling or when they're moving abroad. And so it's really an important lens to kind of anticipate that there might be differences in tight and loose because it's affecting us all the time. Um, and your example is great because even in the United States, we've done some research that can classify the 50 states on tight loose. So rather than just red versus blue, we can zoom into places like Kansas or Alabama and see that they're quite tight. And we can go over to California um, or to Massachusetts and see that they're quite loose. And we try to understand the same issue. Why do they evolve and what consequences do they have, these, these differences even within the U.S.? Yeah, well, let's do that within the states, because particularly this 
juncture in our history and our political situation, I think that's a, that's a great place to start. Let's start with the different states and, and, and your research in regard to the tight and the looseness of each one of these, the California versus Mississippi or New York versus, uh, Alabama. Sure. You know, it's remarkable because we see the same exact pattern that we develop measures of tightness and looseness in the 50 states, how much constraint versus latitude is there at the state level. And what we see is that states in the South tend to veer tight, states and some in the Midwest as well, some on the, and states on the coast tend to have more looseness. And, and it's interesting because um, the tight states, just like tight nations, have more natural disasters, they have more pathogen prevalence, uh, they have more food insecurity, um, and loose states are m- much more safe to some extent. And, you know, they have less of those kind of threats. And what's fascinating is that the trade-offs that tight loose provides, both at the national level, um, also apply to the state level. So, for example, you know, when we think about tight and loose, what they provide is um, tight states give up much more order, um, and loose states have more openness, and that applies across the states and the nation. So, for example, um, tight states have much more... Um, you know, they're much more stable, they have less divorce, they have less homelessness, they have more law enforcement, um, and they have more self-control, like they have people who are behaving themselves more. <laughs> but loose states, they're more disorganized, um, but they're also much more open, they're more tolerant, they have less discrimination, they're more creative. So that, t- that trade-off of order and openness is something we see in many places where we're comparing tight and loose cultures, and neither is superior to the other, really depending on your vantage point. Um, by the way, tight states tend to be more polite in our data, and loose states tend to be more rude. <laughs> My own <laughs> home, New York State, where I'm from, uh, was number one on rudeness. Uh, but loose states tend to be more fun than tight states, according to our research. So there's, a, again, this kind of trade-off of order and predictability um, and etiquette with openness and tolerance and creativity. Is there always, Michelle, this kind of dichotomy, or is there some, well, let's take the states, something in the middle, you know, where they're... That's right. So you can see that this is a continuum. It's not either or, both at the national level and also at the state level. You have states, um, for example, like Minnesota, that tend to be kind of in the middle. Um, You have, um, in every context, you can place countries on a continuum. What's interesting, because people always ask me, what's better, tight or loose? And what I found is that uh, the extremes are really problematic. So, for example, groups that either are veering way too loose or way too tight tend to have um, more suicide. They tend to have less happiness. Um, And this applies also to organizations, organizations that are getting too tight. Uh, My example in the book is United last year when this organization needs to be tight because it's in a very dangerous industry. So you need a lot of rules. But arguably, you know, it was getting too tight where there was not enough discretion, where employees were using, you know, sort of having freedom to make some decisions um, in context where they should have been. And on the flip side, you can think about organizations like Tesla that are arguably, you know, getting to be too loose and need to have a little more tightness injected into them. <laughs> so I call this the Goldilocks principle of tight loose, that we, groups veer tight or loose for good reasons, but as they get more extreme, it invites a lot of problems 
uh, and I, and it's I use it to analyze what's happening in global politics. When groups get too loose, it invites the welcoming of tight forces because that's just something that's unsustainable is feeling that there's too, too much looseness and so forth. So it's something that I think we can use, you know, in our everyday lives as well as in our understanding uh, global dynamics. Well, uh, under, uh, let's start with global dynamics. Let's start with let's, what's happening here right now politically. Where are we? Are we getting, as I'm listening to you, it sounds like we're getting tighter or the rules are getting tighter and that we're sort of going from I, I don't know is that is is that what's happening yeah. is that good yeah well that's a really good question I mean I I could tell you that you know a threat is something that we can um, see that as soon as people feel threatened they want stronger rules they want more like autocratic leaders to help them coordinate to survive it's it's based on this kind of evolutionary principle and what we found before the election is that the people that felt the most threatened whether it was from, you know, invasions or from immigration or other types of threats, they really wanted the country to be tighter. And they wanted, um, in turn, they wanted um, leaders like Trump. And the same pattern could be found, we, we saw in France with the Le Pen election, that people who felt very threatened really wanted stronger rules. And, and that threat can be very real. I mean, there, in our case, you know, we know the working class in our, in our research is actually more threatened, and they are tighter than the upper class. And, uh, you know, I think that's one explanation. These groups are objectively threatened from all the disruptions in the world, and they're attracted to some, I should say, to stronger leaders. Um, but also leaders can activate threat all around the world from, you know, for centuries, can, you know, kind of amplify threat and target groups that are threatened. And that's something that I write about in the book, that we need to calibrate on how threatened really are we, because... Tightening is important when there's objective threat, but it produces this kind of intolerance and lower creativity. Um, so we have to be, you know, really mindful of of how we tighten up, even when it's not objective. I think that's a really critical point because and a, a perceived threat that really isn't there is quite dangerous, as you're saying, and in dictating our behavior, how we view somebody who's our leader. So we have to make sure, I'm asking you, I guess, whether it's a perceived threat or it really is an objective yeah. threat that we are facing. Yeah, I think arguably, you know, Steven Pinker, a colleague and friend of mine, he argues with a lot of evidence that we are so much safer today as a species. You know, we have much less violence. We have much less disease threat and famine threat. Of course, there are threats on the horizon, but relatively speaking, we are much safer than we have been for millennium. <laughs> and, um, you know, I can do laboratory experiments where I bring people into my lab and I can activate threat really pretty, pretty easily about terrorism or about disasters. And it, I could see, you know, within a couple of minutes, this really tightens people's minds. It makes them want stronger rules. Um, and so, again, it's something to be mindful of. What's, what's kind of really interesting is why um, leaders, including um, Donald Trump, are you know, known to be massive norm violators. <laughs> you know, they're attracting people who are tighter, and they're tightening up groups, but they tend to you know, really violate a lot of norms and are challenging norms in our political system that have been so stable and we've taken them for granted for so long. And I think that phenomenon is also equally important for us to analyze because when our leaders act in norm-violating ways, it invites that kind of norm-violation contagion all around the world with other leaders. And that is something I think is happening at the same time as we're tightening. We see this loosening and this almost invitation of norm violations from leaders around the world. 
On a different topic, what about climate change? Now, uh, it seems to me that, for instance, Donald Trump views that as a perceived threat, whereas any scientist that you, any, that that I've talked to or any one that you read, you know, when you read the scientific, uh, you don't have to read the scientific journals, that climate change is a threat, yet we're not reacting to that. Can you, can you put it in the context of what we've been talking about? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's really an important issue because that threat seems so abstract, and psychologists call this sort of psychological distance. You know, when something seems really distant in our minds, it doesn't take on the same motivational force. And when something's really close to us in our minds, when it seems very salient, it's happening soon and now, then it takes on more motivation. And I think that's part of the problem is that we we need to bring these this climate change problem into the here and now and even invent ways to say to show people visually what will the world look like with climate change what will it feel like i mean there's ways to do that with virtual simulations and and other things that i think would be useful I think the other issue has to do with tight loose in terms of, you know, as a nation, you know, we really value a lot of freedom and we, we get nervous when it comes to constraints and rules. I mean, not everywhere, as I mentioned, but it's something that with climate change, we have to decide that, you know, we have to have strong norms around this context. We have to, as a species, use norms to tighten up when we need to, when we're getting too loose, and we have to loosen up when we're getting too tight. And I think we can use the power of social norms to make a difference in things like climate change. Or another example is the internet. That's kind of the flip side. This is a place that's too loose. (laughs) You know, it's completely normless. And we need to kind of sacrifice some liberty for constraint on in that context and, and have more rules because that's where we're living online all the time. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we you know, become, you know, a hyper-tight society on the Internet. But we need that Goldilocks principle there, too. Well, who are our leaders in this case? We sort of, you know, we've we've gone into the 21st century, and it's sort of, you know, it's remind, you know, it's sort of like when you study history, it's like the turn of the century and from the into yeah. the 1900s. But who's out there? Who's up there? Or where are they? How do we make these changes that you were just discussing? I mean, where do we look for the leadership yeah, I think this is really a, a, a great question. And, you know, I think culture has to be part of our policy. I think it's often something that we neglect. Cultural dynamics, like I'm talking about, and norms and, and, and tightening and loosening are things that should be part of our vocabulary. Um, and uh, often it's just so invisible culture that we don't recognize is how important it is. And I think that leaders more and more need to start recognizing the power that culture has both to affect us but also for us to use it. Um, in terms of improving our planet. I, I think some people, you know, just um, in terms of things like the Internet, are being thrown into those leadership positions. You know, they came into, this is Mike Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, he came into this as, you know, someone who was developing a technology and had no sense, apparently, that this was going to unleash a huge, loose world. <laughs> We've known in psychology, you know, for, for a long time, that when people are not monitored, when there's no social presence, that they behave in all sorts of bad ways. <laughs> you know, they start violating rules um, when they're online versus when they're face-to-face. And so we have the situation where we have rapid change. We haven't anticipated the psychological and cultural dynamics that happen with that change with technology. And so we're just kind of catching up now. But I'm optimistic, as, as Thomas Friedman says, the journalist at the New York Times, that this is a second inning for the Internet. Like now we're kind of backing up and saying, wow, we have all these great things about the Internet. It enables us to, you know, connect with many people, um, to do business in very efficient ways. But we also have to tighten the norm so that it's a civil place for ourselves, for our 
for, for, for future generations. And I, I believe those leaders will become more accountable for doing so. Um, and also, we, as, you know, we also have a responsibility to do that. I think it's happening on the Internet in certain spaces, in Reddit, for example, where it's really promoting open discussion, but also making people realize, like, not everything goes. There's some limitations to this, you know, on civil behavior. I think that's a great example, uh, and I think that it's true. This is sort of the second wave of the Internet, because I think in the beginning, uh, it, a lot of it was like, oh, woe is us, now what's happening? And there was this kind of reaction to the Internet is not a good thing, and, and you know, as you're describing it, everything is too loose. But now we're saying, well, it's here to stay, so what are we going to do about it, and how are we going to use it in a positive way, Thomas Friedman? That's but right. what? Oh, now you're a professor, a distinguished professor. So what's the reaction? Cause you're, you know, you're, you're, you're with the students. You're with this next generation. You know, what's the, what's the discussion? What are your discussions around all of this with your students? Well, you know, I'm just so blessed because, you know, I'm, I'm a professor and I have a very diverse research group. So I, I hire neuroscientists to help peer into the brain in different cultures to study how people react to norm violations and how people coordinate in times of threat. And we do, you know, studies in that domain. I hire computer scientists and we do research looking at sociocultural modeling of culture and we combine our methods from cross-cultural psych with, with methods from computer science. And I work with developmental psychologists to study children. And what, one thing I've recently been doing um, is looking at how early do some of these differences arise. And, and we've been studying three-year-olds and looking at differences across groups and, and how three-year-olds react to, to people breaking the rules. Um, and, and so I try to bring in as many perspectives as possible. And in my group, really anything goes. You know, we try to see, you know, what else can we use tight loose to understand? Um, another context now I'm been start, starting to study is parenting because <laughs> I have two teenagers and, you know, tight loose is relevant here also because I have to figure out with my husband, you know, what domains do we need to be tight in and what domains can we kind of loosen up in because we don't want to have too uh, tight a household or too loose a household because, again, we know that those extremes are not good for kids. So that's kind of fun to negotiate the strength of norms with your children. So, you know, that's kind of um, where we are as a group at Maryland. We try to really uh, think outside of the box and, you know, any topic is welcome. <clears throat> On the website, I asked people to send me stories like your listeners to send me stories about how tight loose is related to them and i've gotten so many stories about marriage about organizations about other contexts that might spur a huge research program for us <laughs> so i invite people to to send their stories to me yeah i think that's uh, i'm glad you brought it up parenting <laughs> Uh, I mean, I have, everybody who listens to me knows this, I have three grown sons, but now I have three tiny little grandsons. So I oh, wow. sort of get the opportunity to watch this parenting stuff happen from a little bit of a distance. So it's, yeah, I'm curious, you're talking about three-year-olds. What do three-year-olds do? How do they create these norms or begin to create these norms uh, for themselves and, of course, in the context of their families? Well, it's, it's super fascinating because developmental psychologists have been showing that even infants seem to have this kind of normative radar. So even before we have our language capacities, infants are reaching for puppets. This is how we study 
reactions to norms in, the, in, in early childhood. They reach for puppets that are behaving themselves, and they avoid puppets who are violating rules, like hitting other puppets or stealing from other puppets. So it's remarkable to see that even infants, you know, um, react to this. And then as we age, we sort of, as a normative species, we start even following rules and also enforcing them. And in our research, we were simply interested in looking at, again, in this case, the working class versus the upper class. And our hunch was that the working class needs more rules because they could fall into poverty. They occupy more dangerous jobs. They, in our research, we collected zip code data and tracked where do people live, and those are more dangerous places. So parents, very early on, are really the prime mover of this, of, of trying to train kids to follow rules. And in fact, in the, re- in the research we've done, three-year-olds from the working class are much more upset when the puppet violates rules when they're three years old. And, and upper-class kids are a little more uh, permissive, and it's not such a big to-do. And, and so you could see these things arise very early. And we're really interested now in moving into sort of developmental neuroscience and culture to see how we can compare what's happening as kids age in different cultures, what's happening in the brain as they're observing these things and how it's enbrained, basically, and enculturated. These things, you know, are socialized from a very early age, so it's important to realize that there's a reason why they develop these differences and, and maybe can promote a little bit more empathy that we have for other people. Yeah, empathy. I'm glad you mentioned that. We have four minutes left because now <laughs> we're talking about empathy and we've sort of gotten in our position well, in this country, it's uh, where we really are divided into, you know, red states, blue states, and it seems to me we're getting, it's more divisive. It's it's not getting less divisive. So how, you know, what can we do about that, given all we've been talking about for this past half hour? Yeah, you know, it's. I think it's, it's a critical question, and a lot of the problem is, as many people have argued, is that we tend to be more and more in our echo chambers. We thought the Internet would open us up and we'd kind of be exploring and interacting with people different than us that we can learn from and, and see them in a, in a light that shows that they really have more similarities with us than differences. And instead, you know, we are retracting into our little chambers and, and talking to each other. And I think one of the most important things in that respect to promote more empathy is to be having more of these conversations uh, and learn to talk across the aisle find ways to ha- to see each other's real lives and how much similarity that we have, even if we do have differences. We we did an interesting study in the U.S. and Pakistan where we gave people in Pakistan who have very negative stereotypes about the Americans, uh, they think we're exceedingly loose, not just loose, but like half naked all the time. <laughs> and Americans think Pakistanis are extremely tight, They're not just tight, but like not ever playing sports or not reading poetry or listening to music. So we did a very simple intervention where they read each other's diaries for about uh, seven days. Every day they were sent a daily diary from someone from another culture um, versus reading a diary from someone in their own culture. And it was remarkable to see the change in how people felt much more similar. They still saw differences across cultures, but they said, wow, we're far more similar than we realized. And I think that kind of intervention, this daily diary intervention, if we can't get each other to, to meet face-to-face, let's really give each other a window into our lives so we see how much more similar we really are, even if we do have some differences. What a great idea, just w- reading or listening to other people's stories. Um, two minutes left. Well, I want to make sure cultural psychologist 
Michelle Gelfand, PhD, distinguished professor. We, that's who we've been talking to today or with. And your book is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our Worlds. So website that we can go to to find out more information about the book, which we can buy Amazon bookstores everywhere, but uh, also a website that will give us more information about your work and what you're doing. Sure, it's www.michelle, that's with one L, gelfand.com. And on the website, you know, I have a quiz, a tight, loose mindset quiz. You could take your own quiz of, on this dimension, on this continuum. How tight or loose do you veer as an individual? We all have differences based on our culture, our generation, our gender. And I think it causes, you know, some conflict in our daily lives with our spouses, our kids, our colleagues. And we can kind of learn more about maybe where do these things come from. And I also have stories on and, uh, and an excerpt from the book there. And I would be so happy to hear from your listeners about how it connects with your life. Terrific. Well, I'm going to take the quiz myself. I thought, I think I'm <laughs> loose, but we'll see what happens once I take the quiz. and get. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Catherine. Really enjoyed it. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Hannah Jaff, a humanitarian and neck. Flicks series star. Uh, Hannah was born in San Diego to a Mexican Catholic mother and a Kurdish Muslim father and learned from a young age about bias and discrimination. In America, it is not socially ideal to be either Mexican or Muslim, and she is both. She knows these biases were wrong, and she was determined to change that narrative. A graduate of Harvard University, she created her own nonprofit, the Jaff Foundation for Education, when she was just 25 years old, whose mission is to teach immigrants, refugees, and the less fortunate, launch non-discrimination campaigns for the world's peoples to respect one another's race, skin color, natural origin, gender, disability, religion, sexual orientation, social class, political views, and age. She now stars in the Netflix series, Made in Mexico. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Nice to have you here. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, I get that is impressive, and I know your education is also impressive. You went to Harvard. You also studied at Columbia University, and then at just age 25, you create this foundation, which yeah. Foundation for Education. Um, before we yes. start talking about the foundation, uh, let's talk about your just your personal situation, your parents growing up in a family when one of your your mother was Mexican. Uh, yes. Your father. Do I have this mixed up? Uh, yes. My father was Muslim, Kurdish. Yeah. So obviously, um, as a young age, it was um, it was very it was hard for me because I I never it would always depend on who I was talking to, who I was. You know, if it was Latin, I was Mexican. If it was someone from the Middle East, I was, you know, Kurdish or Muslim. You know, it was always very confusing, you know, and that obviously um, caused bullying in school and, like, uh, a lot of uh, personal issues. You know, it, was, um, it wasn't until I became proud of who I was, I read who I was, I, be- I started to travel to Mexico in the Middle East. And I embraced it, and um, and I realized how so many families in the U.S. and in the world are interfaith, you know. And so it was always like um, we would, my home, it was always Christmas and then Ramadan and then all these different languages because my father had 
you know, Persian friends, Turkish friends, Arab friends, Kurdish friends, and at the same time, you know, um, all constant negative news we're hearing about either wars in, in, in Iraq or Iran and conflicts in Mexico with violence and immigrants. My parents were always big activists on both fields. You know, my mom was an immigrant and my dad was um, with refugees. So, you know, I always got to see the aftermath of war because we would visit afterwards and volunteer on refugee camps or help immigrants. So it was always a... It was, it, was, it was a lot for a young girl, you know. Um, uh, well, let's, it is a lot for a young girl, and I just kind of want to go back to that because yeah. your parents were refugees, immigrants, or immigrant and refugee, but what about their, their background? What was, you know, you grew up in a uh, multicultural family, obviously, as you yeah. said, and subject to bullying. I want to maybe talk about maybe a couple of those specific incidences that happened to you and how they may have changed you. But first, what was the... Uh, you know, that's your cultural background. What about your socioeconomic background? You grew up mainly in Tijuana? No, um, we, my mom's from Tijuana. We grew up in San Diego. And I always had, um, you know, food on the table, went to good schools. My dad had a good job. You know, that was never really um, an, an issue for us. Like, we always, uh, my parents were hard workers and, and always pushed me to go to school and do better for myself. And so for that reason, you know, one of the pillars of being Muslim was helping others. You know, you have to donate 2% of your income. Uh, And he always, my dad always pushed me, you know, to the practice of charity. And that's one of the reasons why I became a humanitarian, because of my father. So... We were constantly um, always helping others, like uh, volunteering, you know, in, in charities, NGOs, and it wasn't until I be, when I was 25 that I did my own NGO. How did you reconcile, especially today in this culture and people associating Muslims with terrorists? And you're talking about a com- obviously a very completely different upbringing, and right. a different, yes, a totally different. I mean, obviously. So how did that fit into? I mean, I you know you went to elementary school, middle school. Yeah, what was the, yeah. <laughs> I went to high school, a private private school in in San Diego, and. Um, I remember when it was 9-11, I got in all these uh, arguments, and it was always like I had to constantly be defending myself, and uh, whether it was being Mexican or whether it was being Muslim or whether it was being Middle Eastern or, you know, it was, or being a woman or being, you know, it was, it was a constant, you know, justifying myself. It was constant, have to you know, uh, explaining, you know, myself, you know, and, and defending a religion or defending a race. And that's why it became so frustrating for me because it was my everyday life. And if it wasn't with, um, with Americans, it was in Mexico with, you know, with Middle Easterns. If it was in the Middle East, it was with Mexicans or Americans. And I had to defend Americans, you know, it was always like my, my life, you know, and I take personal if, even if they criticize Americans, or even if they criticize Mexicans, or even if they criticize um, Middle Easterns, you know, I take personal all three because I consider myself all three because they're all my home. So um, it was always like uh, very frustrating for me. You know, uh, I did have breakdowns sometimes, where, uh, being 
saying sometimes, you know, I should have just been 100% one thing and lived in that country and that would have been my, made my life easier, I guess. Yeah. But so what made you so resilient? How did you, what, what is it about you or about your family or about your parents that made you so resilient? As you said, sometimes you did break down, not have a breakdown yeah. necessarily, but uh, it did get to you. It got to you. So how did, how do you bounce back? It, it wasn't until I actually witnessed um, so many stories of other people and I decided to be a voice for them. You know, I, I recall being on in refugee camps and listening to every single story. Behind every camp, there's a story. And um, I, if you if you listen to at least one or two, I think that the hate towards you know refugees uh, coming in or or helping them would really um, you know change someone's opinion because honestly, there's no way if you you hear their stories, there's no way anyone cannot want to help them, you know. Um, that made me very, very um, active, you know, that made me very, you know, resilient because when I heard these stories from other girls that were my age and maybe lived in the same social economic um, lifestyle as me or same education as me, just the only difference was she grew up on the other side of the world and because of that, she had her family taken from her, you know, she was abused or, or you know, um, she had to leave her country, her home. And that was one of the reasons why I said, that's not fair at all, you know. And when I worked close to Mexicans as well and immigrants, it was, it was almost like that same frustration, except different stories, lived upon them. So I was, you know, I, I have both, you know, I have both. Uh, family members that have been refugees, I have family members that have been uh, immigrants, and I related to both stories, and I said, okay, maybe I wasn't born one, but maybe I could be a voice for, for, for one of them, you know, for all of them. And Which is what exactly me, is what you've done. You've given a voice, yeah. obviously, from your... Uh, your foundation, the Jaff Foundation for Education. Yes. So, what did okay? Let's talk about the Jaff Foundation. How this sort of is, you know, just what you've been talking about, sort of fulfilled your mission, or you're fulfilling your mission right. with the Jaff Foundation. What are you yes. doing? How are you doing it? And you are this is a worldwide kind of thing that you're doing it. At how old are you? Because yes. yeah. Uh, I started in 2013, and first I volunteered in other NGOs to get the experience, but none of them really had the cause that I wanted, so I started my own. And um, it, its mission is to help refugees, uh, immigrants, and the less fortunate. First, And you're I still in your 20s? You're still in your 20s? You're under 30? No, no, not anymore. I'm 31 now. <laughs> 31, okay. <laughs> yes. Almost so, still um, in your 20s. Yeah. But I did start it in my 20s. I, I was 25 when I started it. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was, when I got close, I was trying to help them with giving them food, clothing, and all of that helped, of course. But one of the things that I noticed, and I'm a very active, this, uh, about education. And one of the things that I noticed was when immigrants would go to the States or, um, refugees would move to another country was language, was communication. And most of them, uh, lacked uh, speaking English. So, and, and what I noticed among refugees and immigrants was they wait very long, a long periods of time. So I, I thought, I said, if um, they're going to wait, why not give them a book instead of maybe, um, I don't know, a t-shirt or, 
or, or clothing, you know, which also helps, of course, but I was always thinking more of education. And so in my spare time, I started re, uh, writing this English learning book for Spanish speakers. Uh, I didn't really want to pay other, other you know, people that had, you know, uh, English books. I said, you know what, let me just write it myself. So I took about a uh, few months to do that, and then uh, that became the cost for them to know. And I started knocking on doors because no one knew me, and, um, and I'd be like, hey, if you want to donate some books for me, it's going to go towards immigrants, and I'll be like, uh, no, who are you? What's the seat? What, what has the NGO done in the past? You know, it's very hard to get people to trust you if you don't have, like, a history behind, you know, a resume of behind the CV, you know? And uh, so some people don't print in 10 books for me, and then 20, and then 30, and then 100, and then I've donated till today 60,000 of them, but it was little by little, you know? Little and by little, but I'm picturing this one woman, you, young woman, doing this all on her own, or I assume that you must have, yeah. <laughs> you must have I some did, help. I, or- I didn't. <laughs> I, I started by myself, uh, and word of mouth spread by social media. I, I don't come from a famous last name or, or, or company in Mexico or anything, so it's especially hard for me to get here. It, that does make a difference if you well, are. Well, it makes a difference here, so, too, I think, when people want to start right. things like foundations that you're just, yes. you need access yes. and people who have a name right. or, yeah, or, yes. or, or power or whatever it is have access mm-hmm. to a lot of different people, which you say you didn't. Um, I didn't. So, so people started hearing about it, and I started on my own, and then there was two volunteers, and then there was three volunteers, and then four volunteers, and it became 7,000 active volunteers today. So um, and we are in 18 states. So that's sort of one of the things that I talk about in my conferences and universities. I try to motivate others because till this day, the NGO has never received a check. Um, no one actually helped us and said, hey, here's everything. You know, this was a teamwork. This was one person and then two people and then three. And then we became like a huge family. We became a huge team, you know, in, in different states. And, and it's beautiful because they all... They all shared the same the same cause with me, and others have said that thanks to my, you know, my NGO, they they became philanthropists as well because maybe none of them would have. So Hannah, what when you went to because you went to Harvard University? Now one would say, okay, you, you yeah. obviously you earned uh, the the grades and you uh, and and smart enough to go there and let you go to Harvard University. That provide would seem to me would give you some access Did any of your fellow students or people that you met there help you to, to I did have a lot of college friends but some of them did donate for me um, but I was very international like I was very uh, I've, I've always been about having friends from all over the world and that's why I started actually many of my friends have helped me with this we are one campaign idea because they have actually opened my, you know, my eyes and heart and mind to other ethnicities and cultures and ways of life and ways of thinking aside from uh, Middle East and, and Mexico. So that's one of the other the other things that my friends from, from Boston and New York that I met in those schools uh, left for me. And yes, they, they did help. Some of them have helped me and then I have made donations in their countries or cities. But it wasn't all that, you know. It was it was maybe um, five or six friends that have donated to the NGO. But most of it has been 
actually knocking on doors. And and that's what. But what about the internet? I, because it would seem to me that this would not be able to or have happened if it weren't for the internet. Because you did mention right, that a, social a, a, media a, helped a lot, a yeah. lot. Um, I would post uh, the events. And, you know, people obviously always will have a positive and negative opinion. People will say, like, oh, before teaching them English, I think you should give them food. And I'm like, well, yes, of course, I agree. But, you know, and then but that would cause, you know, uh, people to comment, you know, and, and others to be like, no, I think education is good, having them, you know, teach English. And then we would get feedback from the immigrants or refugees and saying, oh, you know, I actually took the time to read your book and I... Uh, when I arrived to this this place or this country, uh, I could actually communicate now thanks to the book. So that would be like something that would feed me on on driving me even more because I would see that there was positive results behind it. So the internet, the social media, did help a lot, a lot because that's how people actually got to know about it. So once people are fed and have a roof over their head, the next step is, or maybe simultaneously, is communication. You have to be able to communicate right. with one another. Um, yes. Yeah. Otherwise, it sets up roadblocks on both sides of the aisle. Right. Uh, for the person right. who, yeah. So you and yes. you've been able to you now. You've also you've done two TED X talks. Talks. Um, yeah. We can list. Yeah. Yes, I have. Um, and one of them was on human rights, and the other one was on the benefits of higher education in today's society. Because when I got to Mexico, I, um, I only had my college friends. And um, I want to work in politics. Why? Because I want to be part of the decisions that are made in the country. And aside from my NGO, obviously I want to be, you know, I knew that if I was in politics, I, I could do way more. So I started uh, knocking on all the um, government areas, ruling parties in, Mex- in Mexico, and why? And the reason why I got those jobs was my CV, my acad- my my education in my history. So that's what opened the doors to me, and that's why education for me has been always like, um, you know, I always push for it because it wasn't that somebody, you know, the the the, the office ho- uh, jobs that I've had here in Mexico in the past. Um, it was only because of my CV. So that's one of the conferences that I do in my TED Talks. I talk about it. And obviously, I've, I've lived through obstacles like everyone has. You know, there's always going to be people that in your jobs are going to try to put you down. And, and, and you know, they're, they're obviously working in, in politics for a woman and, and working in the man's world in, in general is was always very difficult, you know, and you will face a lot of um, situations yeah. well, where you're saying, you, you know, be. Hannah, you say it was always difficult. It is difficult. It's still difficult. Right. We yeah. still don't have a, a female president in the United States. Right. This is two, yeah, 20. So um, I think it's an ongoing thing. Uh, maybe you'll yeah. be the, you're only 31 years old. You have a few years to go. Maybe you'll be our first female president. Who knows? But uh, Made in <laughs> yeah. Mexico so is on Netflix. Talk to us about that. Right. Well, Maine, Mexico is about nine uh, people's lives, and um, you kind of, you'll see how everyone has personal issues among our circumstances, and uh, everybody is you know has a, a career, most of them do, and um, a romance. There's drama. There's um, Family, there you can see like the beauties of Mexico City. That it was sort of like the, the point of the show. Why I, I chose to be a part of it when I was approached um, was because 
whenever I've been in the U.S. or the Middle East or Europe, because I've lived in, in all three, they, whenever I say I'm, I live in Mexico City um, or I'm Mexican, people sort of have this stereotype. And I was approached with this project and they told me, oh, you know, we're going to give another, you know, it's not going to be like those typical TV shows that you see about like showing the worst about Mexico, you know? And I was like, okay, I'm in. If I can be part of something that will improve Mexico's image and will want people to come here and read more about it and study our history and, and everything, like, I want to be a part of it. So um, I was very excited, and I started filming, and obviously, you know, it's very hard to be in a reality, a reality show because you don't know what's going to happen. So that's sort of uh, what was one of the hardest things because I was put in a show with eight strangers. I didn't know any of them. If this show would have been with my family or with my friends, I think it would have been completely different. But, you know, it was an experience and I, I, I can't regret anything that I do. So hopefully people like it and people tune in and, and want to visit Mexico and know, know more about Mexicans. I, I think that's a great thing. I, I have a uh probably uh, two fans of yours at least, two of my boys who love Mexico, who go there all the time uh, oh. to for art and food and all, all culture, uh, the whole thing. Yes. But, uh, yeah, and, and, living in, and you'll yeah. see beautiful sceneries of Mexico in, in, in the show. Uh, many people have actually called me and been like, oh, my God, I was seeing the show and I had no idea that like Mexico City looked like that, you know. Uh, so... Yes, hopefully it brings awareness, you know, you know, you're so used to going on Netflix and you see all these narco or, 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 you know, cartel shows and, and, you know, it's about the drugs and smuggling and, And, yes, so when they told me about this show, I was like, okay, yes, you know, we need, you know, obviously that, that happens too, but also there's a good part about Mexico, you know, there's good and bad in, in every country, so let's show the best that we can do on, on this show, you know? So that was sort of why I decided to be on it. So, yeah, so it's, it's great for marketing, for PR, and, uh, you know, right. opening up people's eyes, which needs, and yes. seeing Mexico, obviously, through a different filter. So you've taken, you have your foundation, you have the yes. Netflix, you TEDx talks. I mean, you're sort of approaching this problem and from all different, uh, the Internet, um, tackling, right. I guess, the, the, the problem from all different, perspectives all point of views um we only have a couple minutes yeah we only have a couple minutes left so what do we want to leave our listeners with first of all well we want to made in mexico that's on netflix so we know that uh any other places that we can uh go uh, websites or uh, information to learn more about what you're doing and how you're doing yes you can you can go on hannahjaff.com and you'll see all my um my my work uh my ngo's work my family, my um, my family history, my CV, um, my trips, my We Are One campaign, which is a non-discrimination uh, world peace movement, and it's dressed with a message. It's all apparel, and every time we buy one, we donate one. So we donate to refugees or immigrants. So hopefully, people will see our website. It's it's all about world peace um, and all these uh, no bullying uh, and, and peace and respect and tolerance and you unity and you can go on jazzfoundation.com as well and you can become a volunteer if you want or, or read about what we've done or our, our upcoming events as well you can also download for free our, our english book 
And if anyone wants to learn English or wants to give it to someone who doesn't speak English, I, um, you can help there as well. Or my social media accounts, and, and I'm, I'm on all of them. It's uh, at Hannah Jaff. Great. Thanks so. so much for being on the show today. It was really a pleasure talking to you. And Thank uh, you. Hannah Jaff, who's the uh, creator of her own nonprofit, the Jaff Foundation for Education, and you can see her in person or, or on the net on Made in Mexico on Netflix. Thanks so much. Yes. Thank you, Kevin. Bye. Thank Bye. you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 